a lot of people ask how I got to work with Oprah sure. because, you know, uh, I certainly didn't have dreams of, well, there was no Oprah was no when Oprah. I was growing up. Yep. What happened for me was April 10th, 1992. So I was working at Evening Magazine. Yes. Driving in from Forest Grove every day to this job that I literally was vibrating. I was so excited to go to work every day. I loved my job. They kept giving me increasing responsibilities. You know, everyone loved me. I was at the bottom of the barrel, but I was happy. I was happy in that job. And on April 10th, 1992, I was driving into work and listening to the radio. Barbara Streisand came on the radio. Now, it's not a big deal for Barbara Streisand to be on the radio. But she was on the radio singing a song from West Side Story. And she was saying, something's coming. I don't know what it is, but it is going to be great. I'm like, wow, Barbara Streisand singing Broadway on the radio. This is awesome. I thought this is an omen. Something good is going to happen today. I just feel it like maybe I'm going to get a promotion or something. People are fascinating, especially up close. More especially when you get them talking about the things that they love. This is From the Hip, conversations in the service of passion, purpose, and play. I'm Adrienne Gunn. You ready to play? Today on From the Hip, I sit with my friend Shelly Hesacker, who is a storyteller, television producer, and, it turns out, a cat whisperer. <laughs> so I haven't... Uh come up with a super fancy I have an idea of how I'm gonna like intro these probably take a, a moment from maybe maybe you like this idea somewhere a moment from the middle something intriguing that's said and then the whatever the title card like that part voiceover of like blah 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 and then generally I'm just having like a moment where I say my name like hi I'm me and then I'm here with you and then you would say your name so that it gets pronounced super okay. correctly yeah Fancy, yeah? I like that. Thought of that myself. That's good. That's good. I'm rolling with you. I'm cool. rolling with you. So, hi. I am Adrienne Gunn, still, at least today, so far as I can tell. This is very, this is the most Adrienne Gunn I've been today. Sorry. <laughs> I'm here excited to be with my friend. Shelly. Shelly. Shelly Hesacker. Hesacker. I, is there a, is that from somewhere? Yes. Your family lineage? Yes. My, the name Hesacker is Dutch, and the Dutch pronunciation is Hesachers. Gotta get that. Hesachers. But around these parts, we just say Hesacker. And if you know us really well, if you know the family really well, because out in, it's a Dutch Catholic family, and out in the Verbort Forest Grove area, they say Hesackers. And that means we, because it was actually Hesachers. So if they say Hesacker, they actually know, but. Most Americans go with Hesacker. Sure. Plus, it's also spelled that way. Mm -hmm. And if you and know no one else has that name in the world, <laughs> except for me that I know of. So, but there are a lot of Hesackers out in the area. We right. even have a road with our name on it. What? Yeah. Do, do I have a road with my name on it? Scotland, maybe with gun on a street. But my mom's side, I do have some Scottish. Nice from the Muir lineage. Yeah, I finally learned. So my grandfather would tell me like we were Danes that settled in Scotland. And I finally learned that that meant Vikings, kind of. 
Yes, you can be a Viking and be a Dane. Absolutely. I had to write the right, watch the right TV show to get that. I hadn't studied enough. What most people don't know about me is that I actually speak a little bit of Danish. <laughs> okay. For those of you who can't see, there's a cat who's our, our unofficial mascot that's running around and um, sometimes knocking things over. So it's going to be amazing when we're editing audio later. Yes. Well, I'm hoping Bentley will show up right in the interview. That I I will have succeeded if Bentley comes up right here during this interview. That's that's my goal. I'm putting it out there. Oh, that's nice. It's important to put your goals out into the future. Yes. Um, and then you have you have you know when you've achieved it. Yes. We will all know that we've achieved the goal if the cat, the little four month kitty, ends up here next. Don't to mind you. if I sprinkle a little catnip here. <laughs> Just. <laughs> Help make the goal come true. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just like setting the intention. There are actions. Well, yes. But I, I'm going to try what I know about cats. And I know a thing or two about cats <laughs> because I have a number of cats. How many at this point? Seven. Um, but <laughs> I do. It didn't, I, it didn't start out to be that way. But I do have a number of cats. So I do know how they work. And they... They don't like to be told to come. They like to let it be their idea. Yeah. And it needs to, but you need to create the space for them to want to be in your space. Yes. So I'm trying to create a welcoming, like a lap. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to create a lap. I'm trying to create warmth. Look, there's area for the for Bentley to be and play. Yeah. I'm just trying to and, create that. And holding in, holding in your body the essence of love and nurturing. And curiosity, because cats love curiosity. So I'm trying to be quirky, like he's going to watch me from afar and see what happens. I dig it. You know, it's possible. Could be like stretching, but it's possible that there are other instances with other species where these kinds of strategies are also useful. It could be. Creating but, a warm, welcoming environment. Yes, yes. Uh, who doesn't like to have a warm, welcoming environment? Or a lap to lay on. Well, exactly. Yeah. And we I have, have plenty of, of laps for people to lay on right here. <laughs> so um, if you've managed to get this far, however we edit this, and you're wondering why the heck on, on something that's called From the Hip. Am I talking to a he sacker, the Shelly one specifically? Oh. And I actually, I had a, a like sort of <laughs> fangirl a little bit moment of knowing, I, I know what sorts of things you do for a living. <laughs> and I've been wanting to chat and geek out with you on video about your world a very long time. Cause I, there's in my head, I know that you do video and you do interviews and you're so good at that, that there were some very special, important people that, that needed you to help tell their stories. I didn't oh. even have to wait three minutes. That is good. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> this is happiness. This is happiness right here. I think I just have an eighth cat. <laughs> I love this kid. Oh, oh, this is Bentley chewing or licking. Okay, okay, hand. I know, but cats are really special. Cats really are special. So I, I am in a happy place right now with you, Bentley. Thank you. Yes, I am. You are cute. Okay, so now I will get back to you. <laughs> no, I, I have been. 
I like to say I have one of the greatest jobs in the world. Mm -hmm. I work for the people that I love and respect, and I uh, get to live where I want. <laughs> oh, I don't have kitties. Um, <laughs> I work for Oprah and Dr. Phil on a freelance basis. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of... <laughs> okay, Bentley is kind so of... Huge. A, um, yeah, people are like grossing out, like, okay, that's making me have hives. But Bentley's kind of like making out with her neck a little. He's a, yeah, well, he's a I, fan of the what hickeys, cat hickeys. I tried to give, I tried to give an open space, but I was really open, and he just do he just dove in. <laughs> and yeah, you're gonna be a lot, more, you're gonna be much more than a than a TV mascot. I I have big plans for you someday. Yeah. <laughs> We'll just yeah. give them a moment. Just... <laughs> well, when you have seven cats, you've learned that when the cats come, you have to attend to them at that time. And yeah. once they've gotten what they need, they will calm down. <laughs> <laughs> they will calm down the beach. So one of the things that I like to do, here's my current obsession as an entrepreneur, is whenever there are moments of joy happening, because there are tons of times when things seem to be in a drought, pleasure and joy and happiness. And certainly you can create that yourself. I have skills for that. We all have skills for that. But in those moments where joy just shows up in your lap, say, it's a very good thing to show up and appreciate it while it's there. This is a lot of joy. Yeah. Now, I was saying just shortly ago that that I actually speak a little bit of Danish. Yes. And um, while this cat is mauling me, <laughs> Um, I would just like to see if the cat reacts to singing because I love to sing. Yes. And I'm going to sing in Danish okay. to the cat. So, vi skoler med vår venner och dem som vi känner och dem som vi ikke känner dem skoler vi mel skol. Do you think he liked it? Uh, well, if licking a person is um, indication of joy and appreciation, then yes, that is the response. More licking. Yes. It's totally helping the show along. Hey, so we actually met. Singing is fun. We met at a music camp. Yes, we quite did. Quite a while back. Yeah. Maybe. 14 years ago. Yeah. And yeah. it's kind of fun. We There's this space where we get to go be creative together and kind of be like superstars for a weekend. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, music camp, you know, here's the thing. You know, when you're a kid, you get to go to summer camp. Yeah. And you get to do skits and have sports, all sorts of fun things. But when you're an adult, what sort of chances do you have to go out, be in the wood, sleep in a bunk? Yeah. And sing and be creative. There's actually there's actually more of those starting up for well, I had a business friend that uh, I think two or three years ago, she went to an adult camp specifically for entrepreneurs. And the whole time they weren't allowed to talk about what they do for a living. Wow. They like put their cell phones away and they got to play and do archery and painting and wow. ridiculous stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that is awesome. I've, I've actually often said if I ever left the world of television, I think what I'd want to do is create a summer camp for adults. I would go to where, that. Where you learn to play. There would be things to peel back and learn about yourself, but you have fun. But the takeaway when you leave that camp is that you 
feel more connected because I think in this world we are so we aren't we think we're connected because we have our phones, mm-hmm. but you're not actually connecting with people. So sidebar, we could do that. We probably could. We might. We might should put that on a calendar. <laughs> yeah. like, maybe, maybe, maybe we should think. Maybe we should create some space for that. <laughs> space. <laughs> because to... if you create the space, it will come. That is apparently. true. Apparently, I would love to do that. Create an adult camp for play and growth and creating experiences. Yeah. I, had, I had joked about coming up with a, a a series of different individual events called the Get the Bleep Over Yourself events, where you would do things to get outside of your comfort zone to learn that you're capable of more than you think you are and just to be playing and to just... So some of the ideas were, were karaoke, like throwing up whatever song and doing karaoke wow. in a group of like 12 or so. That's um, awesome. There were some people in town with pole dancing classes. That would be stretching me outside of my comfort zone. Uh, dressing up in drag and doing lip song singing and that sort of stuff. That's fun. But God, camps, easier because it's already got a framework that people get. Well, you know, one of the things that I've learned that has really been uh, kind of one of those guiding principles for me is that if you think about in the hospital, the heartbeat monitor that goes like this, Mm -hmm. beep, beep. Beep. We live our lives going through the motions and doing stuff and we get hurt by something. We're like, oh, never going to do that again. And then, you know, we go along and something something else happens. Oh, not going to do that again. And before you know it, you're living in one little line. And when you're like this, that's flatlining. Flatlining is dead. <laughs> yeah, flatlining <laughs> is dead. Yeah. And so the goal in life is to try things to get you outside of your comfort zone and so you want to be having this in your life. It's Absolutely. okay yeah. to have peaks and valleys because that means you are alive. Totally. And one of my favorite experiences, this is, when did I graduate? The, the time I actually got the degree. I went back as an adult to, to college for a business degree. And I think maybe that was six six or seven years ago, mm-hmm. I, it was all of my final projects. It was the last term of school, these huge projects that if it was just me, that'd be fine. If it was just me, I was depending on mm-hmm. for these massively huge projects. But these were group projects because evidently that's important in business, working mm-hmm. with other people. So there were these like massive things outside of my control, larger things being asked of me. And at the same time, I signed up for CrossFit and it was new at the time. Um, so I went to this gym and I've been an athlete in the past. I was a collegiate tennis player and I am used to having some abilities and a sense of what I'm able to accomplish. And I went into CrossFit and there were so many things I couldn't do, but they were stupid things that I couldn't do. Like hold this pole, this, this light PVC pipe above your head and then squat and then get back up. Mm. And I couldn't, I kept falling down on this uh, giant tire, this mm-hmm. truck tire, mm-hmm. and uh, or jump on a box. Like I would go and I would jump up and down on a box for 20 minutes and then feel like I just rule the world, right? Or I could fail over and over and over. And it was so awesome. It was so great to be in a space where I could just suck and fail and not be able to do something. And that was the first, one of the first times in my life. Who would think that jumping on a box would give someone so much pleasure? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, the freedom of of having a safe place to fail over and over mm. again, and also watching other people with uh, different injuries modifying and like just showing up to play and stretch what they thought was possible. Mm-hmm. But mostly it was a gym full of people falling on their asses. Wow. And not being able to do the things mm-hmm. they were setting out to do. Because there's no, there's no camp where you learn to fail, really. No. And that's a really important skill that we've forgotten how to do. Like uh-huh. when we were little trying to learn to walk, mm-hmm. for instance. Well, I think that's why, you know, young people are so beloved in our country is because young people are willing to do things that older people aren't willing to do. And that's not doesn't mean I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush there sure. because there's some older people who, of course, you know, have no limits and will try anything. But in general, you know, people tend to come down to a very narrow area of living. Yeah. And uh, that's not where the excitement is. No, it's not where the growth is, for no, sure. No, that's true. So you were for a second, just a couple, just a little while ago, you were talking a little bit about the magic people you got to work with and for. So I have uh, worked for Oprah and Dr. Phil, and that what my when people say, well, what do you do for them? And when you tell people that you're a producer, a lot of people don't know what that means. Because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I could be just getting them coffee. That's all you know that I do. But but a producer, there's there's many different types of producers, but producers are who gather the content of whatever show is being discussed. And in particular, what I've done for them over the years, um, and I still work for them oh, cool. uh, whenever they call. In fact, I might be working for Dr. Phil next Wednesday. So, oh, nice. um, but my job is as a field producer. So what that means is they, if they have a shoot in Arizona, I, have, I hop on a plane and I fly to Arizona and I interview the guest and I direct the camera crew how to light it, how to shoot it, and to capture that story. So the easiest way to say what I do is I'm a storyteller. Mm-hmm. They say, this is the story that we want to cover, go. And then I go out and I work with, I'm like a reporter, except I'm not on camera. Right. And that's why you've really challenged me today. <laughs> <laughs> because it's not usually me. Exactly. It's 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 not usually me that's being asked the questions. I'm usually asking the questions and uh I'm usually behind the camera. So you yeah. brought, you brought me out into the front. I love it. Thanks for your willingness. Plus if if it helps you to feel comfortable, you could also ask me questions. This is this is us having a Don't think I won't. Okay. <laughs> that's fair. So how the heck I mean, were you playing in the fields thinking this was something that you wanted to do when you were skipping? I, I don't know why I'm thinking of Kansas. I'm like, <laughs> having a picture of you as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, wondering what you'll do. Well, you know, I I was born and raised in Forest Grove, Oregon, and it's a small town about 30 minutes west of Portland. And neither of my parents went to college. So... I had no vision of going to college. I didn't know what college was. I didn't know what that could do for you. And so what I knew that I loved growing up was I love people. I love theater. 
I love, and I watched TV, of course, growing up. My favorite shows growing up were either shows that were funny or uh, I love variety shows. I love like Donnie Marie, Captain and Tennille, uh, Sonny and Cher. I mean, Carol Burnett. Laughing. Any of them. Yeah. I, I just, you know, I love variety shows. I love, I love to make people laugh and to make people feel. I knew that much, but I didn't know that's something other people did. I didn't, you know, people don't grow up from Forest Grove and say, I'm going to work in television. And uh, so my big dream for my life was to work at the Forest Grove Safeway. And I live about three blocks from the Forest Grove Safeway right now. So it's always an option. True. Yeah. It's always something to fall back on. (laughs) But the reason I like grocery stores is because everyone has to go to the grocery store. It's the great equalizer. Mm -hmm. And I want to know who buys the pig's feet and who buys someone does. They wouldn't have it unless someone bought it. They used to have tongue. That was when I was tongue. Yeah. When I was younger, I'm like, who buys this? I want to know who buys it. I want to know. It's fascinating to me. If you put out a display of baked beans on the end cap, people suddenly need baked beans and they're not buying it any other time of the year. And so I have always been fascinated by what motivates people to do what they do. And so my big plan for myself was to work at a grocery store. I was a straight A student. I, you know, I turned in my homework. I did everything. I enjoyed school. And my teachers recognized that and they were encouraging me to go to college. And I said, but I don't need to go to college to work at the grocery store. Yeah. And the other thing about grocery stores is there's music. They always play music in the grocery stores. Even better. So not only is there music, it sounds great, but the floors are super danceable and you spin better. It is just a great place. Yep. It's very well lit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's full of joy. it is. Joy stores. That's really what they are. Well, some people hate to go to the grocery stores. It I can don't. be stressful because there's lots of visual stimulation. A yes. lot of people that don't know where they're going. So if you have, and some, so I loved grocery stores and I also hate them. Really? Because sometimes I'll get in levels of um, anxiety of like people not knowing where crowds are going. So mm-hmm. I have to like get myself in the right state of mind and open my, my vision but so that I can But what a great through. place to watch people. Heck yeah. Because you can see the people who are there to do something and then the people who are just wandering around. Mm-hmm. My grandparents for years on my mom's side, they used to go to the Fred Meyer just to walk around. That's where they did their exercise was walking around the Fred Meyer. And, and so it wasn't even about, it was just the social place to walk. And I love that my grandfather used to always, he, he was kind of ornery and he loved to kind of bug my grandma. He'd wait till she was just far enough out of earshot. And he'd say, Norma, don't forget to pick up your uh, birth control. And she goes, oh, Bill. And this is when she's like 80 years old. Yeah. You know, and people are around like these people in their 80s talking about birth control was freaking them out. But that yeah. my grandpa did that. I thought that was fun. So um, anyway, I digressed. Sure, sure, sure. I do. But I wanted to work at this grocery store and my teachers were saying, well, you need to go to college and you're so smart and you're so talented. You really should. And a lot of my friends were going off to college and I thought, well, I don't know what I would major in. I don't know what I would do. Mm -hmm. I did end up, my teachers talked me into just at least giving it a try. I went to Western Oregon uh, in Monmouth and I thought, well, 
uh, what what would I do here? And I thought, well, I like speech and drama, so maybe I'll teach speech and drama. That's what I'll do. So I um, started coursework to do education and realized quite quickly, I don't think I want to do education the way education is done. I mean, I love teachers. I think school is a fantastic place, but there's so many uh, regulations and red tape about what teachers can and can't do. And I really felt this desire to motivate people, but to do it in a way that I felt needed to happen and not Mm -hmm. be tied down. And so one day when I was 19, sitting in my dorm room, I was watching a local talk show. It was on Channel 2, KATU in Portland, and it was called Two at Four. And the hosts were Margie Belay and uh, Paul Lindman. And I was watching them and I thought, you know, they're educating people. Yeah. They're entertaining people because they had entertainers on. And they're empowering people to live better lives. And I thought it was like a lightning bolt that just went through me. I thought, I want to do, I want to make talk shows. That's yeah. what I want to do. And I instantly went to the counseling office and changed my major. Um, I said, what do I have to do to, to do TV? I mean, because I didn't know that you could do that. Wait, but they actually had an answer for you? No, of course they didn't. Because <laughs> No, because people don't go to that school to, to do that. So um, my dad, Neil Hesacker, who was the spokesperson for the Portland Fire Bureau, he had interviewed with lots of media because part of his job was talking to the news media. Makes sense. And so he said, why do, Shelley, why don't you talk to some of the people in the media and ask them how to get into their jobs. And I'm like, okay. So I wrote these letters to some of the big names, Julie Emery, Kathy Smith, Teresa Richardson. I wrote to them. They all wrote me back. They all wrote me back. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, these are celebrities. You know, it's so awesome. And uh, every step I took just reaffirmed and validated that I was on the right track. And so in 1987, I did an internship with KAT, the same station, that I'd seen two at four. Now two at four went off the air, but they have Am Northwest, which is still on the air to yes. this day. It's yes. been on the air for eons. And I did an internship with them in, in 1987 when I was uh, a junior in college. And you start out as an intern, you do whatever they ask you to do. Uh, you get props for the shows, you run errands, you help create rundowns, which tell what's on the show. You do all sorts of things. And so I did whatever they asked Every day, I was so excited to go into that job. It just felt right. Yeah. And I knew that's what I was supposed to do. And I'm going to pause you for a second. Sure. Because I know you're getting to a pearl, but I want to just I'm getting to a pearl? It's going to get good. You knew? (laughs) Where's the pearl? Um, So several things you did. Just in case anybody ever wants, there's like something they know they want to do and they have no idea Mm -hmm. how. You did informational interviews. You asked people who actually do the thing that either you think you want to do or looks like what you want to do. Yeah. You reach out to them and ask them, hey, how the heck do you get to do that? Yeah. Then you uh, did an internship. Yeah. Where you were willing to no show pay. up for no, no money, willing to show up and give your efforts to support it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure those strategies still work. Yeah. I just want to point that out. That is not 87 or 86 or whenever it was. I think you said 87. Yeah, 87. Yeah. It's not 87, but those two strategies still work now. Yeah. Just, I think that's important to continue, like point that out. 
yeah, before we dive back into the story. The truth is, is that people want to help you. That's also huge. People want to help you, but what, this is the difference. When you say, I want to work in television, it's too broad. You really need to narrow it down. And if you don't know, start with what you do know. So do you want to be on camera? Do you want to be behind the camera? Because in television, there are so many jobs. There are engineers who fix the equipment. There's people who write. There's people who just find stories, who like to research stories. I'm not a researcher. I don't like to do the research. I like to go be with the people. There's uh, almost everything I've done in my career is because I followed what I like to do and use my natural abilities. There's people who sit in dark rooms and edit stories. There's, there, you know, <laughs> they, they're good at that. Yeah, and they love it. They do. And so there are, but if you say, I want to be an editor at a TV station, you suddenly have given yourself this much more access mm-hmm. because people think, do I know any editors? Do I know anyone at a TV station? Or at least they can start guiding you. If you say, I just want to work in TV, it's not specific enough. No. So the more specific, people want to help you. You have to, you have to understand that. You have to have that framework in your mind. But once you're willing to, to say specifically, people will open doors for you. And it did. It, it happened. Absolutely. It just started with me saying, you know, I didn't know I could write to people or talk to people who are on the air in Portland. I had no idea I could do that. And when they responded to me, I just about jumped out of my skin. And their advice to me yeah. was, it doesn't matter what degree you get. Get an art degree, get a, get, get a history degree, whatever you are passionate about. Mm-hmm. But make sure you know how to read, write, speak, <laughs> yes. and communicate. So it doesn't matter what, you know, you can get a broadcasting degree, you can get a film degree, you can get a writing degree, an English degree, it doesn't matter, but you need to know how to write and speak and communicate. For all the degrees. And that was really liberating because when you look at, well, what do I want to do? It really kind of opens things for you. And I chose, I changed my major at Western to humanities. Oh, they used to have that. I don't know if they have that anymore. And humanities is a nice broad, it's, it, it's, it has four components. It has literature, writing, journalism, and speech. Nice. Which are all the elements that you need. And then my minor was sociology. Brilliant. And I love sociology. Sociology is the study of why groups do things. I think psychology is fascinating, but I think sociology is actually more of a driving factor in people's things because people do what people around them are doing. Absolutely. And had that been a major uh, at the time at Western, it now is a major, but it wasn't at that time. I probably would have majored in sociology. I mean, I love sociology. Yeah, I just had an internal giggle. Because my father, my father majored in sociology at Lewis and Clark, where he learned that he didn't like people very much. Oh. <laughs> he just like spends time alone. Just, like, he hilarious. might be a researcher then. It's possible. <laughs> yeah. He's watching from a distance. Oh, that's what people are doing. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I do. I love people. And, uh, but play to your strengths. Absolutely. Play to your strengths. Okay. So you're having an internship. Where does this turn into you're getting finally paid 
to be in your industry because you're excited, you're touching all of the stuff you love. So I graduated in December of 1989 from Western and uh, I got to go back to AM Northwest and fill in for someone who was on maternity leave. And I still loved it just as much as I had when I was interning it. I had a few more responsibilities, but I loved it. But then that ended when someone came back from maternity leave, as happens. And uh, so I was looking for other work because AM Northwest was the only talk show in Portland at the time. And I thought, well, you know, I want to do talk shows and I want to stay in Portland. How do I do this? Well, I ended up getting a job with Channel 8 and they had a program called Evening Magazine. I remember this. It used to be PM Magazine yes. many, many years ago, but then it morphed into a local program called Evening Magazine with Craig Walker and Teresa Richardson. And I believe I was one of 400 candidates for this one job. And um, people say, well, how did you do it? How did you get it? And I think it was fortune cookies. So what I did was after I interviewed, I went and bought some fortune cookies. And this was way back before people cared about germs. But I, <laughs> I took the fortunes out of these fortune cookies and stuffed the fortune cookies with my own fortunes that said things like, be a smart cookie and hire Shelly. How do you spell success? S-H-E-L-L-Y, you know, and yeah. I did all these things. I got the job and it was to be a production assistant. And I, and it might've been because I sang too. I, I created several songs that maybe this time I'll be lucky. Maybe this time they'll say, maybe this time for the first time. The job won't scurry away. Well, all the odds are they're in my favor. Something's bound to begin. Anyway, yes. I, I sang him a song and, uh, you know, how could they resist? I imagine in the 400 candidates, you were just the one. Probably the only one who sang and only one sent sang. fortune cookies. Right. So finding some way to use your particular strengths to stand out. I Well, I think it did help. Uh, I don't think people would touch open fortune cookies with a 10-foot pole nowadays. <laughs> you know, it's just, life has changed a bit. But boy, it was so simple back then. They yeah. were like eating them up as fast as they What's could. What's <laughs> delightful is that I, I know the ways in which you and I are similar. And I definitely, five years ago, Googled whether you could personalize fortune cookies. No, you did there, not. I so did. And you can. You can go personalize and they will put your own messages in fortune cookies if you needed to. Well, and if you can't afford that route, you just take a tweezer <laughs> and you take, you know, and maybe put, put some gloves on for them or Fair something. Right. Make it, you know. You can at least do a, do a, a video of yourself so they can see your process. Yes, that right? it's yeah. all very hygienic and done in a clean way. And so. certainly it's probably this strategy hasn't been done in a while. So if you borrow it, there's an explosion of people yeah. trying to get their jobs by... Well, a lot of people ask how I got to work with Oprah sure. because, you know, uh, I certainly didn't have dreams of, well, there was no Oprah was no when Oprah. I was growing up. Yep. And so, uh, but she came on the scene in 1986, right when I was going through college and everything, but she was kind of more of a local thing on the East coast and in Chicago. And then she became national. Um, what happened for me was April 10th, 1992. It happened for me too, but it happened differently. Not on April 10th? 
April 10th was different for me than you in 92. Oh, what happened to you on April 10th? Well, it was 19th. near my mother's birthday. Okay. <laughs> nothing nothing spectacular happened, but for you, 92 was essential. Yes, it was. So I was working at Evening Magazine. Yes. Driving in from Forest Grove every day to this job that I literally was vibrating. I was so excited to go to work every day. I loved my job. They kept giving me increasing responsibilities. You know, everyone loved me. I was at the bottom of the barrel, but I was happy. I was happy in that job. And on April 10th, 1992, I was driving into work and listening to the radio. Barbara Streisand came on the radio. Now it's not a big deal for Barbara Streisand to be on the radio. But she was on the radio singing a song from West Side Story. And she was saying, something's coming. I don't know what it is, but it is going to be great. I'm like, wow, Barbara Streisand singing Broadway on the radio. This is awesome. I thought this is an omen. Something good is going to happen today. I just feel it like maybe I'm going to get a promotion or something. And around 11, I was asked to go into a meeting with my boss and her boss. I thought, this is it. <laughs> I'm going to get that promotion. Yeah. It was a very short meeting. They told me my position was being eliminated and I have two hours to get out of the building. It was, it took my breath away. Yeah. I didn't see it coming. You know, my dad worked for the Portland Fire Bureau for 37 years. My mom worked in her position for 26 years. I naively thought I would be in Portland television for my entire career. Yeah. I never saw that changing. And so here, this job that I loved, and I was doing a good job, there was nothing wrong, but they said, this is nothing about you. You know, we have to cut budgets and, you know, we're eliminating a number of people. And uh, my position was eliminated and I was, I was brokenhearted. And I thought this was such a cruel hoax. The world doesn't work like this. You know, you work hard and you get what you want. Right, and especially Bar- Barbara Streisand is telling you that something she was amazing. Telling, Barbara Streisand told me that morning that something was coming yes. and it was good. Yes. That's what she said. That's not what happened. And so I uh, I became quite depressed because I didn't, I didn't know what was, there was no more shows in Portland to work at or work for. And... Uh, I was at home watching TV and there was Oprah. And I'm looking at her and I loved her show. I just thought she's really uplifting. I thought she's different than most people because mm-hmm. I liked that she was black and overweight. She was different. She was, I love that. I love that she was being a woman that was giving other women permission to be something special. Of course, when you lose your job, You have no clue what you're going to do, but everyone asks you, what are you going to do? So for that entire summer, just to shut people up, I said, I'm going to work for Oprah. And I found out when you say you're going to work for Oprah, people don't know what to say. It's kind of like saying, I'm going to go play for the NBA. Yeah. It's like, oh, because most people don't have connections to those sorts of things. So like, good luck. You know, I mean, if you say I want to work at, you know, the garbage hauling place, people say, oh, I have a cousin or something who works there. But when you say something that's out of people's realm, they just kind of get quiet. So I found that was the way to kind of quiet people 
up is to <laughs> just tell them I was going to work for Oprah. And people said, oh, I really had no intention to do that because she lived in Chicago and I didn't want to move to Chicago. So what I did was, fortunately, the people at KGW really liked me and they said that there was another position available that I might apply for. And I applied for it and I got it without fortune cookies. Okay. <laughs> but it was it was because my reputation had proceeded. Sure, and and so I got this position in their creative services department, which was I wrote the commercials that try to get you to watch TV. It's, you know, coming up tonight at five, terror in the heartland. I wrote that. <laughs> I wrote that. Yeah. I'm the it's one. Who, I'm the one who tries to get you to watch TV. But that, there's a whole art form to try to get people to, you know, have 10 seconds or 15 seconds to get people to watch something. Yeah. What are you going to say that's going to, and again, it gets back to that grocery store thing. What's going to make you want to buy this baked beans? Right. Is it the price or you have to have it or you're going to die? Or, you know, so I got this job writing these promos in the creative services department. I loved it. I, I didn't even know that this job existed. And I started doing this job. And fortunately at KGW, they happened to be the station that carried the Oprah Winfrey show. <laughs> Plot thickness. Yes. <laughs> yes. And this, our department also had the art department. Well, guess who puts up the big bus board saying Oprah at four o'clock? It was the department I worked in. So when they had rejects, they had this enormous life-size poster of Oprah that they were going to just throw away. Oh, no. I took it. <laughs> of course you did. I took it and I said, can I have this? They go, sure. I put a picture of Oprah up on my wall in my apartment that I was living in Rock Creek. And I put this enormous poster on my wall. And whenever any person came to my house, they go, wow, you really like Oprah. I go, yep, I'm going to work for her. And I just kind of, I, because at that point, not only did I say it, she was kind of the epitome of what I was trying to get to, whether I got there or not. Yeah. She was kind of the bar of where I wanted to go because she had the qualities that I most admired. That's, Probably the best Oprah vision board <laughs> that I've heard of. I didn't have to spend a lot of time cutting up small. I just picked one big vision. And uh, so Oprah was on my wall for years uh, in my apartment. And so what I started doing is what anyone would do. I started thinking, well, I need to just apply for a job there. <laughs> you know, hello. Yeah. So I found out her production company, Harpo, and I, um, you know, started putting letters into HR, and I got numerous rejection letters. Now, did any of these come with photos of you in the Oprah-sized Oprah or any extra like songs? Fortunately, these just well, straightforward I would write creative letters. I sure. would write creative letters and say that I was a, you know, I know the show, I watch the show, I'm a fan of the show, but I also have skills that I could bring to the show. So I was creative in that regard, but I wasn't doing fortune cookies because I didn't really see anyone. I was just sending it. I thought once some, once I get a bite, I have to play it kind of cool till I get to someone. When I get to someone, then I can bring out the fortune cookies. Okay. Well, that didn't really happen. 
Okay. <laughs> so, in fact, I spent eight and a half years uh, not having that happen. Sure. Okay. And from April 10th, 1992, there was about an eight, eight and a half year period. What happened, any re- the, the, the first time I did get a connection from the Oprah show, they kind of indicated that I was a little too small market, meaning that people who work for Oprah usually come from the New York market, the LA market, mm-hmm. the Chicago market, Dallas, Texas, the bigger markets. Makes sense. Portland is size 24. It's not one of the top 10. Nope. So I thought, well, doggone it, maybe I'll just move to Seattle and prove, because Seattle was, at the time, was the 12th largest market. So I got a job at the ABC affiliate in Seattle, Como TV. I, when I got up there, I sent a letter. I'm now in the 12th largest market to prove that I had, because if they said, you have, you don't have big market experience, mm-hmm. I thought, I'll go get big market experience. So I did. I moved up to Seattle and I worked in their creative services department writing promos. And um, but what I was also starting to get to do was uh, and I had done some of this at KGW was getting to organize their public service campaigns like feeding the hungry, clothing, the homeless, the toy drives Mm -hmm. at Christmas time Um, and and. The people at Como in Seattle really liked those skills that I was doing a lot of community service projects and things like that, organizing that, making that happen, doing the promos around that. And um, so I started getting awards for my work. I have six Emmy nominations for my writing and producing efforts. And every time I'd get an Emmy nomination, I would send a letter to the Oprah show and say, You know, I just want to let you know, I just won an Emmy and I would love to put my skills to work for for you. The second time I had an opportunity to work for Oprah, they went with an internal candidate. That happens. The third time that they actually flew me there to interview me, they go, we're going to try you out on this project. And uh, and I'm like, this is going to happen. It's really going to happen this time. And I'd met with everyone. And by this time, I know people kind of because I've you know, I've been dealing with them for so long that I kind of know some people. And one of the people uh, at the show confided that they thought I was a little too nice. That sometimes is a problem in professional worlds, sometimes. You know, the thing is, is I am a nice person, (laughs) Uh, but it's not, it's not to a, it's, it's not a deficit for me. It's a good thing. And, and so, (laughs) sorry, I just brought that up because I have a background in sound engineering and recording and there are a lot of assholes in technical industry. Yeah. And if you come from markets like Chicago, New York, there's a different kind of briskness or whatever that that people get used to in some of the fields. Yes. And I think that's what they were used to were people who have a briskness to them. Yeah. I'm not really briskly. (laughs) I made that word up, briskly. I'm not really a briskly kind of person, but it's interesting. Once I did get hired by the Oprah show, the types of stories that I was most sought after to do were the heartfelt, touching stories that the brisk people couldn't do. No. They'd actually have to feel something. You Well, it's not to say that there aren't feeling people, but everyone has their gifts. Yeah. And so some of the best stories I got to tell were stories that needed a lot of heart, needed someone 
who felt okay to ball in front of me. Some sad things happen out there and you need the nice people to be with them. You need the brisk people for others, for other, <laughs> other shows. Yeah. And so there, there's gifts for everyone, but my niceness ended up being a, a huge asset for me. Uh, but at, at first they saw it as kind of a, for my third interview, mm -hmm. they saw it as kind of a, an off put. And well, you so, asked, right? I did. I said, is there a reason, you know, can, what can I do? I'll move. I'll, you know, I'll do whatever to, to get this job. And they said, we just think you're a little too nice. And I'm like, well, you've painted me with a color that's not my color. I mean, I am nice, but that doesn't mean I'm not effective. There was a headhunter who was working with a colleague of mine at Como. And this colleague came to me and she said, there's this position that my headhunter's trying to help me get. And I think it's at Oprah. She goes, I'm not qualified for it, but you are. And she goes, take this number of the headhunter. I'd never even worked with a headhunter before. I didn't even know what they did. So I called up this headhunter and I said, I am the right person for this job. They already know me. I have skills. I blah, blah, blah. She goes, send me your reel. So I sent her my reel. She called me up and said, you don't have any Oprah type stories on your reel. And I said, nobody has Oprah type stories on their reel because nobody is doing what Oprah's doing. I mean, I had my clothe the clothe the homeless, feed yeah. the, you know, f feed the hungry. I had those sorts of things on there, which were the closest things to an Oprah type story I could put on the reel. Yeah. But she says, you don't have any Oprah type stories on your reel. And I'm like, well, no one's going to have it. How, how are you going to do that? So she goes, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And again, the door was shut on me again. I was so frustrated. And after trying to give up, and then every time I'd try to give up, I'd turn on the Oprah show and she'd say something that would just <laughs> ping me. And it's like, ah, I can't give this up. <laughs> and so, you tried to give up. I tried. I was about to ask about your ability, to, like your perseverance, but you were attempting to give this up. I wanted to. But, but Oprah so, wouldn't let you. Well, <laughs> I don't even think she knew what she was doing to me. But you know, when you feel in, I think we all have something that we know so strongly inside of ourselves that we can't deny. Yeah. And this was some one of those things I couldn't turn away. If you love to make music, you can't not make music. You might do it differently over time, but that's what you're going to do. If you're a funny person, you are going to be funny no matter what you're doing. Absolutely. You can't change who you are. I had this calling to be a storyteller. Yeah. And I was going to do that no matter what happened. Essentially, those were where the best stories were being told. The honest and authentic stories. At that time. At that yes. time. And so what I ended up doing was one morning I thought, I'm going to make a freaking Oprah, Oprah story. I'm going to make a story. And I happened to work with a woman who was so inspiring to me personally. Her son had leukemia and passed away when he was nine. And instead of staying stuck in her bed, she decided to create a grief workshop for children. And she, I mean, to me, she turned her grief into helping others. And I yeah. thought, now, if that isn't an Oprah story, I don't know what is. Yeah. So I decided I'm gonna shoot this story. And I sent it to that woman who told me I was too nice. And I said, please look at this. It's two minutes and 36 seconds long. 
if it sucks, throw it in the garbage and forget I ever talked to you. Yeah. If it's worthy, please get it to the eyes that need to see it. The next day, I had a phone call from the Oprah show, Diane Hudson, who was the executive producer at the time, and she says, who are you? What do you want? And I'm thinking, don't be nice. <laughs> don't be nice. But <laughs> I'm thinking, well, if you like what you saw, I'll give you more of that. And she gave me a chance because usually they like to hire people that they know. Yeah. They don't like outsiders. They, you know, she goes, expect, this was in May of 2000. She says, expect a call in the next week or so. I didn't get a call in May. I didn't get a call in June. I didn't get a call in July. Oh my gosh. I didn't get a call in August. And I, I thought, okay. <laughs> That's a sign. <laughs> right. I thought, I'm leaving television. I'm going to get out of television. And uh, I thought, I'm going to quit my job in Seattle, and I'm going to just move back to Portland, and maybe I'll work at Forest Grove Safeway. Right. Go back to plan A. On September 21st of 2000, I had purchased a ticket to Barbra Streisand in concert down at the Staples Center. This is great. I was about, I was going to ask a minute and a half ago now. So where's Barbara Streisand in all of this? And I'm just... See, well, you see. have read too many stories. You already know the foreshadowing and everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, where is she? Well, Staples Center. She, she was in the Staples Center. She was giving her last four public concerts. And I thought... Wait, sorry, go back. This is 2000? 2000. September 21st, 2000. Oh, because I'm in Vegas at this where are, point. Where are we at where this are point? We? At this point in the world, I'm in Las Vegas, and I was dreaming of getting to be working the Streisand show at the MGM. Uh-huh. And actually, I may have, that year, it was the turn of 99, 2000, that I wanted to work the Streisand show, and I ended up being spotlight for Stevie Nicks. But this is that same, wow. like, later that year, Streisand is... All these seemed like talents last... of you. Why am I not interviewing you? <laughs> the last like performance year, we like Y2K, we thought the world was going to yeah, end. It was. Streisand's gonna sing out the end Her of the world. Her last four public concerts. Okay. We're, we've set so, the stage. Yeah, she's gonna sing. And I thought, I have to see Barbara Streisand in concert. Yes. Before she does not sing in public anymore. Yeah, This huge. is has to happen. So, you know, I could barely afford the ticket because I had to fly to LA and buy the ticket. And, you know, and like I was- $500 to entry, yeah? Yeah, it was, it, well, no, back then, I th but it was like 200 and something, I think, yeah, okay. for the ticket. But that was a lot of money, you know? And um, so I am boarding a plane to go see Barbara Streisand in concert in LA. And one of those brick cell phones. I happen to have one of those, you know, cell phones back then. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't that bad, but it was it was really a clunky the, cell the, phone. The the triangle, the like, the <laughs> what is that shape? It was the flippy. Yeah, I think it had an antenna and everything. I mean, okay. it was it was one of those. But I I got a phone call and it was the Oprah Winfrey show, and they said, "Can you be in Kenai, Alaska tomorrow at two p.m.?" And I'm like, oh. I mean, on one hand, I'm thrilled. Right. But Barbara, Oprah, Barbara, yeah. Oprah. I mean, I mean. These are the tough choices. Yeah. What do you about. do? 
when you're little and you're going to be an adult, you're going to have to make the hard decisions. Well, I did both. Okay. I flew down to because I thought, well, planes fly. So why can't I fly from L.A. up to Kenai, Alaska instead of from, you know, Seattle to Kenai? It's a lot closer from Seattle, but... You know, I'm just taking a little detour. If we slow down that moment, there's some amazing wisdom there. Sometimes in adult decision world, we think it's one thing or the other. Because in the moment, it presents that way. Streisand or Oprah, and what you did was you put an and in the middle. Well, gosh, you make me feel so good about that. Awesome. (laughs) High-level adulting. Well, you know... I wanted to see Barbara Streisand. That was high on my need to do list. And she was on the evening and the next day was Oprah. So why couldn't I do both? There's just no sleep involved. But and you you allowed yourself to believe you didn't think that there was a at some point you got to the point where you're like, that's not a conflict. Well, it wasn't a conflict for them on the phone because I just they hadn't purchased the ticket for me to go. They said they would purchase the ticket. But they'll purchase the ticket from me flying from L.A. or they'll purchase the ticket for me flying from Seattle. And I said, well, I'll be in L.A. I'm just on my way to L.A. And they go, well, we'll fly you out of there. So (laughs) I'm like, okay. And it just it worked. And so I went down there to that Barbara Streisand concert going, oh, my gosh, tomorrow I'm going to be doing my first real work for the Oprah Winfrey show. And I'm so worried and I want to do this right. And you know, I'm in the Staples Center in L.A. and the and I don't even know if it's still the Staples Center, but mm-hmm. I could touch the ceiling. I was so <laughs> high up. That's the tickets that I could for. And I'm looking in my binoculars and I can see Jack Nicholson and John Travolta down in the front row. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool to see these celebrities, you know, but, you know, here I am. But I'm here. The lights go down. What's the very first song that Barbara Streisand sang? The something's going to happen. Something's coming. I don't know what it is. And I just, I just started crying because I knew in that moment that my dream was coming true. I knew that everything was going to go fine. I knew at that moment that this is what that moment on April 10th, 1992 was about eight and a half years later, that it was all coming true. And that concert of Barbara's was fantastic. It was fantastic. And I got on a plane the next morning. I went up to Kenai, Alaska. I got there by two. And uh, I did, um, the first shoot I did was on Frumpy Makeovers, a woman who worked at a chemical factory and who had always dressed like a man, wanted to feel like a woman. And we were doing a Frumpy Makeover. You know, do you feel frumpy? And, And so it was kind of a fun piece and uh is shania twins feel like a woman is that out at the time i don't know that that was out at the time it might have been that seems like (laughs) late 90s doesn't it right but she wanted to feel like a woman man she wanted to feel like a woman (laughs) so uh i did that uh story and it went well and what was interesting is all the work i had been doing for those eight and a half years had prepared me so well to go out and do this story. And yes, it wasn't a 15 second piece I was writing. Mm -hmm. It was a longer form thing. But I sent that off to the Oprah people when I was done. They loved it. They called me the next day, the next week, and they said, will you do a shoot in Jackson, uh, Mississippi? 
And then they called the week after that and asked me to do another shoot. And uh, after the third time they asked me to do a shoot, because I'm starting to think, this is great. I can live in the Northwest and I can work for Oprah. This is the greatest thing on earth. <laughs> well, then they called in November of that year and they asked if I would come do an exclusive uh, working for them for six months and going to Chicago. And at that point, my friends were like, we will stone you to death if you don't go and do this. Because right. there was a thought, well, I like living in the Northwest. I don't really want to go to Chicago. Right. But I went. And uh, after a month of working there, they offered me a full-time job, which they don't normally do. But I think they did it because I, I was so prepared. I was so prepared. I had come prepared for that. It took me eight and a half years. Yeah. But I had done the work. And I got in there and that niceness that that disqualified me earlier mm -hmm. was one of the qualities they liked the best in me was because I really had a good rapport with the guest and I made guests feel comfortable and they really respected that. So what was perceived as a weakness was my strength. Well, and also there's this assumption when you're used to working with people and they're they show up in a different you know specific kind of package they come from storytelling from sp specific markets used to something you came with from a different market it's so funny i i frequently people people pay coaches and and therapists a lot of money to get permission to be themselves mm -hmm. it's like who you are your strengths are exactly what's needed Mm -hmm. for the thing that you want? Well, I think they can program robots to do a lot of things these days, but I don't think they can program robots, maybe I'm wrong, to make people feel loved and needed mm -hmm. and connected. I don't think they can program robots, robots to do that. That's one of the unique things as humans we can still do, that yeah. robot, that we have over robots. Yeah. Well, and I actually, so I've seen a lot of ominous uh, storytelling in the world about what happens when the robots show up <laughs> and they're, they're coming, they're on the way, the robots and the AI, but there are things that humans are capable of. Yeah. That even as our body parts are replaced with, with robotic pieces, yeah. there's humanity that's useful. For, I'm actually a little bit excited for when we as humans get to specialize in what we can offer. Yeah. So that. Yes. Weird kind of sense that it makes. But, I yeah. think that's what most people in jobs want. People want to give gifts. We are born with gifts. We want to give gifts. And the people who stay in jobs and they're miserable, I feel sorry for them because what they're really crying out to do is to give their gifts. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I think one of the best gifts my dad gave to me was he's, he told me uh, from the time I was really young, he says, whatever you're gonna do for a living, he says, make sure you love it because you spend a lot of time doing it. Mm -hmm. So you need to love it. So all it asks us to do is to tap into what do we really care about? What would we do if we weren't getting paid or not? Absolutely. That's really important to pay attention to because, you know, and. Uh, I brought this with me. Sometimes I give speeches about, yeah. about um, how how someone from a small town got to work for Oprah. But in 91, I met this guy who's a filmmaker 
And because uh, I've over the years, I've done a number of projects as freelance people do. Yeah. Uh, and he he told me I need to write down what I want to be doing 10 years from now. I think this was in 1990. He says, I want you to write down what you're do- going to be doing 10 years from now. And I thought, oh, this is stupid. This is, you know, I don't really like affirmations. I don't sure. like, yeah, I, that's not my thing. But I, he says, come on, let's do it. Let's, you know, so we wrote it down. I found this several years after I worked for the Oprah show. So this says what I what I want. This is this is the thing. What I want in the year 2000, it says I'll be 30 something. I'll hopefully have a master's and be teaching high school speech and drama. So this is right after I graduated from college. Um, would like to be working towards educational excellence and possibly a teacher of the year award. Um, and it, it, in the summers, I'll travel, direct plays, movies, documentaries, maybe start thinking about getting married and having a family. But that's blah, blah, blah. That's what we write. On the back, I wrote what actually probably will happen. Yeah, that's what I wrote on the back. What actually probably will happen, I'll find myself still obsessed with Oprah and hopping stations to get hired on. I'll be trying to convince Richard Carpenter that I'm Karen Carpenter reincarnated and we should take a show on the road. But towards the end of the year 2000, I'll finally get my dream job with Oprah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. By the year, the end, by the end of the year 2000, Mm -hmm. I will finally get my dream job with Oprah. When did you write that? In 1990. Now, I just, now that you have this, um, and certainly there are people who say, you know, I I wouldn't change a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any chance that you would want to like go back in time and edit that for 94 well, I think it went into filing somewhere and I, you know, lost complete track of it until later when I was married and some of the, you have to go through these boxes of paperwork. And then I found it and I'm like, O-M-G, like this writing it down stuff works. Like, I mean, I didn't even realize I had written this, you know, you kind yeah. of write it and you forget about it. And I didn't realize that that had done it, but it. It happened. It works. That's why I'm saying ask the universe for what you want. It might not happen on the timeline that you want it to, but it happens and it happens the way you need it to. Mm -hmm. And what I learned by waiting those eight and a half years to get on with Oprah was I I had a lot of fun working in Seattle. I had a lot of fun working in Portland. I had I honed skills that I would have never done, but I was doing it just, you know, I was working at the station that aired Oprah. And yeah. then I went up to the station because it was a bigger market. I was always following this chain to try to put myself in position, but I was having fun. Yeah. I love those jobs. And so, you know what some of the fun, you may already know this, but there are, there are people who teach people how to manifest, how to do the vision boards, how to how to process it. And I, I was talking with a woman who calls herself a witch. She thinks she's a witch. Mm-hmm. I, that's her identification. And she was talking about casting spells. Well, people might call me that too, but well, not for you, different reasons. When you <laughs> give breath and life to something that you want, you say it out loud. You were telling people your intention yes. for years, telling people yes. your, and even though you were joking, Almost always in humor, there's truth. 
Yes. Otherwise, it's not going to be funny. There needs to be truth. So you were just yes. trying to get people to shush, but you were speaking out loud a thing. So when you write something down, mm-hmm. you not only have to picture it in your mind to figure out which words to say. When you mm-hmm. write it down, it becomes physical. It goes into action mode mm-hmm. because you're making it from a from a mental spark of an idea to your thought process to actually kinesthetically putting it in your cells to get it onto paper. And then it becomes part of the the tangible aspect of the world. Well, look at you. This is what they teach. Wow. This is sometimes what I teach. Wow. Ah, ah! You made magic <laughs> customs. No, I didn't know that's what I was doing. But you know, because all I was doing was paying attention to doing something that I wanted to do. Because my dad told me to do that. There were times my parents said, don't you want to work at Portland General Electric or don't you want to? I'm like, no, my heart doesn't sing to do that. Yeah. Uh, So I just kept paying attention to what my gut told me I needed to do. Yeah. And that is huge. Certainly there are plenty of people that would give you plenty of other ideas of what you should be doing. Oh, people love to tell you ideas of what you should do or what they see in you. Yeah. But that's not that's not your truth. I mean, sometimes they know you well enough that mm-hmm. they can give you a good nod. But you, this is the thing. People <laughs> people give you input all the time. Absolutely. You get to take it in and look at it and go, yeah, I'll take that or oh, not that one. Right. And have you always had the that sense of getting like, this is right for me, this is not right for me? How does that feel when you know that it's a negative truth? Like Barbara Streisand shows up in your model of of the world of like something's on path. And something's coming. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I have had a sense of what is right or what is wrong. I don't know if it's from having intact parents and great raising. I'm not sure if that's what it comes from, but I've always been pretty clear about what feels right to me and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Where I fall down is sometimes I close something off that could have an option. And and that's where I am trying to use the improvisational, theater has an improvisational theory and the improvisational theory in, in, in improv comedy or doing improv theater is that you need to say yes to whatever comes in front of you. Mm-hmm. Forrest Gump was the epitome of someone who just takes whatever is given with to him and rolls with it. Yep. And so that's hard for me because as a producer, I want to kind of figure things out okay. and, and plan it myself. Yeah. You can get so far by doing that. You can make a lot happen by making your world the way you want. But sometimes some of the most beautiful things happen when you just allow things to happen. Yes. That's what I'm trying to work on is allowing more things to happen. Because I produce, right now I produce a show called thequiltshow.com. It's a talk show about quilting on the internet. You can, thequiltshow.com. I've been working with them for eight years now. And I love the quilt show. I have never been around quilters before in my life. I'm not a quilter, but I make this show about quilting. I would have never known to do that. Right. I would have never been open to that if I didn't start saying yes, because you never know. And now what I've learned from those quilters, quilters take all these tiny little pieces of fabric and they put it together and create these most magnificent 
art pieces, really. Mm -hmm. What I learned from quilters is that I'm an artist, but the way I do it is I do it with people's stories. I get all of this information and pull it together and then I weave together the story. Yeah, My story is my quilt. And so I've learned from quilters that I'm an artist. I didn't give myself permission to be an artist until the last eight years. Oh, that's amazing. Because yeah. you've been doing it a long time. Yeah, but I always thought other people were artists. I didn't think I was an artist. I thought I worked in a creative field, yeah. but I didn't think I was an artist. I think artists paint, they make music, they, yeah. you know. But what I learned from quilters is that I am an artist. But my medium is in storytelling. And I do that with video. I do that with photography. I do that with writing. So, yeah, I'm curious if you have your sights on anything at this moment, like like today, are there any things that you're like, hmm, can set out on your dream boat? And I, I don't know if they've got like the big cutouts of your next idea right. or thing that you're looking for. Right. Because if there was, I would have it on my wall. Yeah. Well, and I I suppose you're still you're still doing work for Oprah. Still doing I do. work for Dr. Phil. I do. Here's a funny. I have many friends that are very, very successful and have achieved things that other people couldn't even begin to dream of. And I wonder, like, when you've hit something that's become the moon in society, mm-hmm. what do you aim for next? Do you aim for other galaxies? Like, or like, what what shifts in in your desires? Does that, that make sense? That it absolutely does. And and it's a great question. I mean, ask child stars. <laughs> <laughs> And I have. Right. (laughs) But uh, when you have peaked at something, what do you do next? And that is always the next question. You know what I have found for me? And Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in this place right now. I've been doing television for 30 years. The first half of my career, I would say I was very focused and very driven. I know how to set a goal and how to get to a goal. That's one thing I know how to do in this world. What I found in that process that almost every time that I set a goal and then tried to get to it, I was so focused to get to it that I kind of didn't live in the process. Mm, Yeah. And I ended up not enjoying the goal. The goal was never as good as I thought it was gonna be in my head Mm -hmm. when I had the goal. So I've spent the last half of my career trying to be more open, not setting goals, but just setting circumstances. Mm -hmm. What I know that I love is I love to educate, entertain, and empower. My three E's, Mm -hmm. educate, entertain, and empower. I'm a storyteller. Where can I use those gifts? Where can I do those things? Where, so I'm bringing, I'm bringing the party, where can I plug in? Yeah. yeah. That's Absolutely. instead of saying, I want to get here and go there. I want to bring these elements and see what happens because I could have never seen the quilt show happening. Last year, I was asked to produce a country Western talk show or an entertainment talk show with country music. I love music. I've loved music my entire life. I was asked to produce this show. I did it. That would have never happened if I was trying to set a goal and go for it. So 
I don't think setting goals are bad. If you're not good at setting goals, perhaps you should set goals and try to do it. But I'm trying to work on what I'm not good at right now, which is allowing things to happen because everything in me wants to pick something and go for it because that's what I know what to do. Yeah. But that didn't always end up making me happy ultimately in the end. So I'm trying to just bring me, be the best me I can be. And that still needs work always, but I'm trying to be the best me I can be and bring that to wherever I'm going. This is awesome. There's actually a really uh, well-told story from the Oprah world about this goal setting thing. And I I can make it brief. So you can, good. (laughs) Oprah is, she's told this many times where she really wanted to be in the color purple. Yeah. She's told the story of how she she talked to whoever she worked so hard to get that goal and she got the goal. And then afterwards, she says, I never want to have to work that hard again. Mm. It is not uncommon for people to set goals in a way mm. where they set them for the specific thing that right. they want. They hold that in their mind and mm-hmm. they hold that so tightly mm-hmm. that every path that they take is deliberate and focused and deliberate mm-hmm. and focused. And then they get the thing. Mm-hmm. And what they never developed along the way was, well, not all of them, but what they didn't develop along the way was the ability to appreciate where they were at the time. Mm-hmm. Because the funny thing is that the, the skill set a lot of us forget about is we, we get very, very specific, but this is how we want it to do. And I'm making this fist now because they hold on to that mm-hmm. image. Mm-hmm. This is what I want, just like this. And they don't let go of it because people forget to ask themselves, when I get that thing, mm-hmm. how will that feel? Yeah. How will I feel when I'm doing that? What yeah. will I be doing? When you're writing your goals, this is something that for some reason, I don't know why I knew this about goal setting. What I thought was like, if I get to achieve this thing, how will I feel? How can I feel that now? Mm-hmm. In order for people to take me seriously, when I say, I want to do this thing, I'm a such and such. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter what the specific goal was. It was like, how do I hold my body? And maybe mm-hmm. this is from acting world that I was trained to like, people who do this kind of job, specifically mm-hmm. when I got my life coach certification mm-hmm. and I finished it, I was like, I don't have clients yet. I'm not sure how to get clients, but I know at some point I'll have figured that out. It's sort of the, the Bill and Ted strategy, the excellent adventure, time travel. Like at some point I will be an amazing coach. What does that life look like? What do I eat for breakfast? How do I walk? How do I treat people? How do I show up when I walk into the room? And I was like, actually, I can do all of that now so that I can get it more easily. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting to hear people talk about, I got the goal and it, I couldn't feel it mm-hmm. because along the way, they weren't building their capacity to enjoy the journey. Well, sometimes people don't know what you don't know. You know, in our communication classes or whatever, they draw the box and there's yeah. there are things that you know that you know. There's things that you know that you don't know. There's things that you don't. I mean, I'm getting confused on what they are, but there's yeah. one corner where you don't know what you don't know. Heck yeah. And but it is important to imagine what it might be like because it may be like that or it might not be like that. Yeah. But it's important to at least I think I think you're right. Had I spent some time wondering what it'd be like when I got there, but it wasn't to me about what it was going to be like. It was about just getting there. Yeah. And I got there. Yes, you did. And I'm surprised by it by myself. But on the other hand, 
I don't know how it could have been any different because there was no other option for me. Any path led that way. Nice. So this next path, whatever it is, how do you want it to feel? Oh, good question. Yeah. You just went right there, didn't you? (laughs) Well, the older I get, I turned 50 this year. Congratulations. And thank you. (laughs) And in honor of turning 50, I shaved my head. I, I was brown. I had brown hair just a few months ago. But in honor of turning 50, I shaved my head and allowed the authentic me to come through. Uh, And I'm surprised how gray I am. (laughs) And I'm still getting used to that. What I am aware of as I get older is that I want to feel joyous. I want to put myself in situations that make me want... Whenever I've been on shoots and I start singing, the camera guys knew that was a good thing. I was in a good mood if I was singing. Yeah. I was feeling good. I want to be in a space where I want to sing. Yeah. Or where I can just feel, I want to connect. I want to feel joy. I want to feel peace. I want to feel that I matter. And because I matter, I can help other people feel like they matter and feel like they have something to give. I think stories can change the world. And so for me, I don't think much about the job aspect of what do I have to do to do it. Mm-hmm. I wanna be having that feeling of, I'm connecting with other people and sharing story, whether we're doing that for for pay or whether I'm just doing that as a human. All of a sudden it's like, I don't wanna separate my life into, this is what I do for work. This is what I do for spirituality. This mm-hmm. is what I do for you know health. This is what I, I want it all to be one. I want to be, I want all of myself to be integrated. And that's what I want to feel. I want to feel that my spirituality can come out when I talk to you, that you know that I have something deeper and a higher connection, that that any that all of me all of me <laughs> i want <laughs> i want all of me to be present when i'm with someone and so it really doesn't matter what comes up but you're right the feeling is that i want to feel fully integrated and to do that i have to make sure i'm feeding all of those areas of my life yeah yeah and that's a work in progress <laughs> totally Well, I think that captures if bringing all of you into into any room you walk into. Mm -hmm. I'll be there to help you do that if you ever need it. You'll be in that room with me. Yeah, you just like (laughs) call upon me. I I can be outsourced to any any room at any moment. It's a weird gift I have. It's like well, and because I spend my life asking other people questions, I want to put you on the spot (laughs) and ask you what you want to feel. Yeah. Nearly, oh, when I have been off the path, is how, what I say, when I'm feeling lost and off the path. It's not my favorite feeling. When I'm feeling lost and off, off the path and I begin to work with some, I'll go to the acupuncturist or work with some sort of helping friend 
to rediscover the pulse of who I am and catch the the scent of of what's driven me and compelled me forward. Almost always, the first thing that pops up is this this sense of play. Mm. The word play comes up over and over and over again. I want to play. I too want to be joy filled. Long ago, the mission that I discovered was mine. <laughs> I discovered it because I kept screwing it up. I wanted the room to be better. Every room that I walked into to be better for my having been there. Wow. To leave it a better place. And I knew that that was what I wanted because I kept walking into rooms and fucking it up so supremely that I had the power to ruin a whole bunch of people's days. Like mm. this was something when I was much younger, mm. I would discover, wait, I have, I have the, who I bring to it, each situation has the power to influence more than I thought. Yeah. And so, so when I learned what it felt like to do it wrong, I started getting curious about what you could do. Being able to walk into a room and meet somebody and poke a button that made them feel so much worse about who they were. Yeah. It turns out that that same button, if you poke it with a heartfelt and loving intention, you can help people change and blossom into something more than they thought that was possible. Near my house, there's a Seventh-day Adventist church, and they put these amazing billboards up mm -hmm. that I love. I've stopped many times and taken pictures of these billboards because they just have little quotes. One of the ones that it said recently was, one of the best ways to build other people up is not to give them a piece of your mind, but to give them a piece of your heart. Mm. And I think about that a lot in terms of what happens on Facebook and in social media yep. with people giving a lot of pieces of mind out there. But what if we all gave a piece of our heart and, um, and what would our heart say? And I think that's a beautiful thing that you want to walk into a room and leave it better. And it reminded me when I, I went to, I've done several self improvement workshops mm -hmm. and there was a relationship ready because I was almost 40 years old when I got married. I went to this relationship seminar and one of the most profound things that came out of that is you have to learn that in order to be with someone who you're crazy about, you've got to be kind of crazy about yourself. You've got to be a person <laughs> who someone wants to be crazy about. Yeah. And uh, but what came out of that was I identified three qualities that I most want to give in a relationship and that I want to receive from someone. And those qualities are I want them to be passionate, mm -hmm. playful, mm -hmm. and supportive. And so when you said you want to play, I mean, that, I mean, we're, we're so much cut from the same cloth, mm -hmm. you and yeah. I, but uh, <laughs> I, I just feel that is true. And that again, as I'm bringing my whole self in, it's, that's not just for the relationship world anymore. I want to bring my passion of what I love to do. I want to be very playful in whatever form that takes. And I want to be supportive to others and have people be supportive to me. You know, creativity doesn't just happen in a vacuum by itself. Nope. It needs support, it needs those things. And yeah. so if you spend some time, if you at home spend some time to think about what are three qualities that you absolutely couldn't live without that you want to give to the world and also receive. That is a really fascinating exercise to do. Yeah. And, and that's kind of becomes one of those guiding goals or principles 
that you use in your life as you go forward. Yeah. To make a big difference. A prayer that I would say in the mornings yeah. Yeah. each day. And I say prayer because it feels like that. What you know, may or may not I've had religious background, but it's not I don't go mm-hmm. to a church. But each morning I set an intention and I would pray to um be be in service to to be useful. In addition to wanting to so play and ins- inspiration is part. I want to be inspired. Mm-hmm. I want to inspire others. Right. And just the last 10 years, the part of the prayer is like, you know what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. You know you know me. You know what mm-hmm. I'm capable of. Please put me in a place where I can be useful, mm-hmm. be of use. Yeah. And that one snuck in about 10 years ago that like that that I can show up and help create meaning and give some gift of my meanness. Absolutely. Which I have to slow down when I say that. I want to give my <laughs> yeah. me-ness. Yeah, when you put world. it together, it's a whole different <laughs> yeah, thing. <laughs> you, you go through that too quickly. But but I, I'm I'm here for a reason. And I don't always know what that is each day. Yeah. But I, I deeply desire to be of use. Mm-hmm. This the, the quirky ways in which I was, you know, fired like the kiln of my family. Mm-hmm. It's traumas, it's triumphs, it's whatever. Mm-hmm. The, the randomness of me is here for some some sort of good. And yeah. I'd, I'd like to be able to be of service to that. Well, I think you're doing that today. I think so, too. I'm really, really so honored and thrilled that you came to play with me today. Thank you. Just- well, you know, uh, if I didn't know we were going to play because I would have brought something, but... <laughs> The cat has left the building and I really enjoyed the shower I got from that was quite a greeting. So Kitty showers. I love Bentley. Thank you, Bentley. Thank you, Adrian. That was really, really special. Thank you. Make squeaky noises. I think we did it. I think we did the thing. Well, that's how that went. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Thanks for watching, listening, I don't know, reading, imbibing, however you took this in. Thanks for being here. And if you really enjoyed it, I'd I'd love it if you would do all of the things. Uh, Like, share, I don't know, ring a bell, bang a gong, tell a friend, and come back next time. I hope you had as much fun as I did.